0: How do you guard the most treasured possession you own? And what if that possession was so precious it cannot be kept to yourself, but you must share it with others, such as the cure to cancer or solution to end world hunger, or perhaps a bona fide 100% effective COVID vaccine with absolutely no chance of side effects or controversy, completely safe, entirely flawless. To keep it to yourself alone would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? to possess such knowledge, to know such power, would obligate you to somehow get it to the right hands for mass distribution. You would have to guard it from any defilement. You would have to ensure its longevity in order that as many people as possible would be able to benefit from it, wouldn't you? Well, to cut to the chase, the greatest treasure we possess is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Better than cure to cancer, more significant than any solution to world hunger, More certain than any COVID vaccine, the gospel is the antidote to sin and death. It's the remedy to eternal misery. So how do you guard the gospel? How do you ensure it would be passed on in its purest form to future generations? Having possessed such powerful knowledge, what do you do with it? We're continuing our study through the Epistle to the Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel. And in chapter 1 of the letter, the author, Apostle Paul, writes to the churches in the region of Galatia and reminds them of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminds them that the gospel is divine, that it's not man's gospel, but God's gospel. Hence, that the gospel is exclusive, and any departure from it, any addition to it, any negation of it is not the gospel. A different gospel is not gospel. It's not good news. In fact, it's bondage. And anyone who preaches such false gospels, no matter how reputable or capable of of, of a preacher that person may be, Paul says, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. There's no soft way to put it. The gospel cannot be compromised, undermined, or underestimated. The gospel is a matter of life and death, eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. For it has the power to transform, transform even the vilest of sinners, to supernaturally regenerate, Uh, dead, wretched, and wicked souls, to living souls, pleasing to God, glorious unto God. Hence, we can see why the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, loved the epistle to the Galatians as much as he loved even his own wife. And in our passage this afternoon is contained what some biblical scholars pinpoint as the central thesis of the letter. We are introduced to Paul's concise summary of the gospel and to the central doctrine of our faith, justification by faith alone. It's the doctrine in which the entirety of the Protestant Reformation and even our entire faith hinges on. As Luther said, In this epistle, therefore, Paul is concerned to instruct, comfort, and sustain us diligently in a perfect knowledge of this most excellent and Christian righteousness. For if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. So then what are the implications of possessing such invaluable information? From Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 21, I want to share with you three implications of knowing the true gospel. Here's the outline. Point number 1, partnership through gospel unity from verses 1 through 10. Point number 2, preservation through gospel purity verses 11 through 14. And point number 3, perseverance through gospel clarity from verses 15 through 21. Partnership through gospel unity, preservation through gospel purity, and perseverance through gospel clarity. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message you will be reminded afresh of the greatest treasure you possess in the gospel of Jesus Christ made known to you. I pray it will reignite your love and zeal to grow in it and to overflow from it and that it will compel you to share it joyfully with others. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for visiting us today. If you do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we especially welcome you. We've been praying for you. Christians all around the world have been gathering together to worship and celebrate Jesus our Lord every first day of the week on Sundays. Because the truth of His life and death and resurrection and ascension had great implications for those of us who came to know of His good news. Let me tell you, for many of us, the story of how we came to know Jesus is very different. Some of us grew up in Christian homes. Many of us did not. Some of us became believers of Jesus when we were young. Some of us became believers of Jesus when we are older. But the commonality between all of us were that we were all grave sinners in need of a gracious Savior. Scripture says we were once dead in our trespasses and sins until Christ revealed Himself to us through the preached word of His gospel. We pray that you would hear this gospel today and believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to know peace, to know true joy, and true hope, and to know true love. We pray God would grant you the gift of repentance and faith this afternoon. So without further ado, let's turn to our passage, which can be found on page 972 and 973 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, let me encourage you to please keep your Bibles open during the entire duration of the message, and look along and follow along, so that you know the words I share are from God's words to encourage you and build you up in Him today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 says, Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What are the implications of knowing the true gospel? Point number one, partnership through gospel unity from verses 1 through 10. Look with me again to verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. This verse is linked to verse 18 and verse 21 which also starts with the word then. As Paul chronicles his relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem and the churches in Judea, we are told 14 years have passed since Paul's last visit to Jerusalem when Paul visited Peter and James for 15 days in verse 18. Paul continued to underscore the independence of his apostleship and his gospel, that he did not need the endorsement of the apostles in order to preach the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. So then... What was the occasion in which Paul, along with Barnabas and Titus, visits Jerusalem? We're told in verse 2, look at verse 2, I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, before we get into the details of this visit, it may be helpful for you to know the book of Acts uh, mentions at least four visits Paul made to Jerusalem. Let me just tell you briefly uh, the four visits. The first visit occurs not long after his conversion, recorded in Acts 9, verses 26 through 30. It was on this visit Paul gets acquainted with Peter and James, according to Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, three years after his conversion. Paul's second visit was to take a gift to the poor who had suffered during a severe famine recorded in Acts 11, 27-30. Paul's third visit was perhaps the most famous. He went with Barnabas and others to what is known as the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts 15. And it was at this council that the apostles officially declared that the Gentiles were welcomed in the church. Paul's fourth visit to visit Jerusalem was his last, uh, when he is arrested and sent to Rome, recorded in Acts 21-28. through 28. So, Which visit was the instance in which Paul visits Jerusalem 14 years later, here found in our passage in Galatians 2? The reason why I ask is because careful readers of the Bible and biblical scholars debate whether this visit in chapter 2 in verse 1 is Paul's second visit or third visit. In one sense, many of the details of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, Paul's third visit lines up with this visit. The same parties were present, Paul and Barnabas, presented their gospel to the other disciples because they were opposed by the false brothers. It discusses a similar issue, whether or not Gentiles had to be circumcised to be accepted in the church. And the meeting had the basic same result. Paul's gospel of grace for Gentiles was affirmed. But there are also significant differences. This meeting in our passage tells us the meeting took place in private meetings, whereas the meeting of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was public. Paul says the reason in which Paul went to Jerusalem was in response to a revelation, whereas the reason for Acts 15 was an apostolic summon, where Paul was part of an official delegation from the church in Antioch, according to Acts 15.2. But the most telling case uh, may be if Galatians 2 describes the same event as Acts 15, then why did Paul leave out the detail of the visit he made to Jerusalem in Acts 11, his second visit? especially if Paul is trying to show his independent authority of his gospel by the use of chronology. Again, as I mentioned in the first sermon in this series, the most controversial part of this letter is the chronology of how Galatians fits in with the book of Acts, the debate between north or south Galatian theory. Well, if one favors the south Galatian theory, as I've already shared I do, Uh, Paul's mention of 14 years is most likely from his conversion in AD 31-32. Hence, this event takes place around AD 44-46, which lines up well with Paul's second visit. Which is why verse 10, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, which at first seems to be a bit random, actually makes so much sense. Now, I just took a lot of sermon capital to explain all of that. And some of you may be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, it matters because context matters. It matters that Paul's fight for the true gospel was that important. Again, what do you do if you possess something so invaluable as the true gospel? You would fight for it. You would defend it. You would endure in proclaiming it. And that's what Paul was doing. Furthermore, it helps to explain verse 2 and 10 better. What does it mean in verse 2 Paul was called to Jerusalem because of a Revelation. Well, flip back with me real quick to Acts 11, verses 22 and on, found on page 920 of the Blue Bibles. Acts 11, verse 22 and on, it says this, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who we know is now known as Paul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Context really helps, doesn't it? Now, whether by a direct revelation from God to Paul, or a revelation that Agabus received and was communicated to Paul, Nevertheless, we see a plausible reason for why Paul went up to Jerusalem in his second visit, and as I said, verse 10 makes a lot more sense. But not only that, it helps make sense of the more major quandary of these verses, the the purple elephant of these verses, if you will. When Paul says he privately met with those who seemed influential to set before them the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain— Context helps us discern and interpret the reason for Paul's concern of whether he thought he was running or had not run in vain. Paul's concern was not in regards to the content of the Gospel at all. After being overly zealous about his Gospel, which Paul claimed was from God and not man, after boldly flexing that he received this Gospel directly from the risen Lord Himself, after preaching it for fourteen years, independent of man's influences? Was Paul doubtful or retreating from the confidence or the legitimacy of the gospel of grace? Here in these verses, when Paul says he was concerned whether he is running or had not run in vain, no way, absolutely not. Paul was concerned about practical ramifications. Paul was concerned about division within church leadership regarding partnership in the gospel. Given the occasion for travel, relief of the poor during a famine, Paul requests a private meeting with the leadership of the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John, in order to confirm partnership through gospel unity. I love the details of Paul's words in referring to Peter, James, and John as those who seemed influential. Uh, it, It was not some sarcastic way of denying their actual influence. It was simply to show the reality of Paul's limited acquaintance with them. Paul knew of these leaders as persons of influence within the Jerusalem church. Paul knew them as apostles, but he had not known them as partners in the gospel. He had only met Paul and James for 15 days, 14 years ago. Now that Paul has been faithfully preaching the gospel and pastoring for 14 years, in this particular occasion, Paul checks in with fellow gospel church leaders in an attempt to establish gospel partnership, gospel unity. Does that make sense? and we see how they gladly affirmed Paul's apostleship his gospel and his particular ministry to the Gentiles that's verses 3 through 9 look at those verses again verses 3 through 9 which says this but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Well, brothers and sisters, three things are clear from these verses. Number one, those who add to the gospel are not brothers. They are false teachers, false Christians. Secondly, those who are entrusted with the gospel are partners in ministry. And third, the gospel is sufficient for all. Uh, those three points will serve as brief subpoints, which I'll address briefly. Uh, we've already addressed the big issue in the churches of Galatia, and because of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, uh, Judaizers who call themselves believers and followers of Christ were forcing their cultural traditions upon Gentile converts, namely circumcision and their purity laws. Paul had said in previous passages, previous verses, those who turned to a different gospel were actually attempting to reverse the gospel and undo what Christ has done by His death and resurrection. You see, these Judaizers were subjecting themselves and others back under the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws and requirements, and they were seeking to nullify Christ's substitute sacrifice. What's clear here in these verses as Paul names them directly, exactly, these are not partners in ministry, they are enemies. They are not our brothers and sisters in Christ, they are false brothers, secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. They are spies. They are enslavers of the worst kind. They are not Christians. We cannot partner with them in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, how does Paul's consistent and strong language in describing those who add to the gospel challenge us in our relationship and dealings with those who claim to be Christians, yet preach an entirely different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all? Those who force cultural norms in addition to the gospel those who subtly inject their societal worldviews in addition to the gospel, those who wave flags of cultural virtues in addition to the gospel, be whatever it may be, those who claim knowingly or ignorantly that there is a special level of Christianity in which only certain Christians can obtain by greater faith, greater spiritual power, greater holiness, greater submission to the law, greater works, greater zeal. To them, Paul says, Anathema, there is one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, be weary of those religions who require uniformity and conformity. Unity and uniformity are entirely different things. Remember, unity, not uniformity, is God's goal for the local church. And diversity is God's gift to the local church. So we pray for and we are intentional about the diversity of people from every ethnicity, every age, every socioeconomic class. But we are unified under the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. We here at New Covenant Baptist Church want to celebrate and promote a diversity of peoples from various backgrounds and various stages of life. But we aim to be of one culture not multi-culture, but a gospel culture, a gospel revealing culture, a gospel promoting culture. Here, we will never cater to the preferences of different cultures. We will never cater to different music styles, traditional service or contemporary service or preaching styles. We as a church will be united under the same preached word, all laying down our personal preferences to unite as one people, a gospel people, a gospel-centered people, a gospel-centered church. Furthermore, those who are entrusted with the gospel are partners with us and we with them in ministry. We happily pray for them regularly in our Sunday gatherings. We partner with them for missions, for church planting and evangelism. We happily recommend our members to join their churches and we joyfully receive them into our membership. This is the reason why if any visitors and guests visit our church from other known gospel preaching churches in this area, we don't have any issues gently and lovingly telling them, thank you so much for visiting us today, but please go back and serve your own churches faithfully. Get plugged in. Serve faithfully. Be accountable. Before ever considering moving to another church in the area, if your church is a gospel preaching church, Consider perhaps how God is calling you to serve your own church with all its imperfections. Not perhaps, but most likely a certainty. Members of churches should never be checking out other churches. For what reasons? Does a married person ever need to check out other spouses? Of course not. So be faithful, be committed, be accountable. We are partners in the gospel. Each of us, each of our churches are called by God for a specific purpose. God has called you exactly where you are to serve your church, to grow where you are. Of course, this means the church you are attending very well must be a gospel-preaching church, every Sunday from every passage, pointing you to the salvation in Christ. If the name of Christ or the mention of the gospel is a rarity from your pulpits, that's a very good reason to leave that church probably soon. I love hearing from new members who ended up joining us because they were looking for a more biblical church, a more gospel-centered, a more Christ-centered, a more word-centered church. Let's continue to pray that we would guard the who and what of the gospel at NCBC. Let us not drift into heresy or apostasy. Amen? Because as you see in verse 5, Paul's resolve to not yield in submission even for a moment to false teachers is in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And how incredible is it that the gospel has been preserved for us 2,000 years later by faithful men who did not yield, even for a moment, to false teachers. You see, even though the gospel is sufficient, that's what Paul means when he says, even those who seemed influential added nothing to me. The gospel in itself is the power unto salvation. We can't preach a better gospel there is no message there is no news that is better so again brothers and sisters how might we partner together in unity that the gospel may continue to advance know that we can't do it alone as paul did know that the compromise of it is unacceptable know that the gospel is sufficient now i said i would address verse 10 so look with me there verse 10 says this only They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Upon initial reading, this verse can seem as kind of a postscript to the agreement Paul and Barnabas had with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. As in, okay, you go on preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but add this to it, remember the poor. No, that wasn't this at all. As I mentioned, the very occasion in which Paul and Barnabas and Titus came to Jerusalem was to aid in the famine that was affecting the known world. And Peter and James and John were calling Paul and Barnabas and Titus in partnership in the gospel to help the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, the poor Christians in Jerusalem, according to Romans 15.26. As you may or may not know, there are various scriptural support in how from the earliest days, the Jerusalem Church faced conditions of grinding poverty, as seen by the church's concern and care for the poor in Acts 4 verses 32 and 35, and Acts 6 verses 1 through 14. You see, Jerusalem was a land of soil deprivation and poor irrigation, and we also know that Judea was also hard hit in this period of history by famine and war and overpopulation. So chronic was the economic deprivation of the Judean Christians that they became known collectively as the poor. And since Paul was ministering to the Gentiles in Roman provinces where believers were more financially well-off, Peter, James, and John's request to remember the poor was received by Paul not as an onerous burden, but rather as an activity he had already begun and was eager to carry forward. Again, Paul is articulating for us the beauty and power of gospel partnership and unity that the truth of the gospel reaches beyond our head knowledge, that the truth of the gospel reaches beyond culture and cultural traditions, that the truth of the gospel reaches and extends beyond the boundaries of ethnicity or socioeconomic statuses. The truth of the gospel calls us to unity. As one commentator says, in a moment of crisis, Paul found it necessary to stand adamantly, stubbornly, uncompromisingly against the heretical doctrine and illicit demands of false brothers. It would have been easy for Paul to compromise on this issue in order to save face and win some friends in Jerusalem. By such approach, Paul might have, well, spared himself a confrontation, but he would have thereby have forfeited the cause of Christian freedom, the Christian gospel. At the same time, Paul greatly valued the unity of the church and sought to strengthen it in every way possible. Again, how do you guard the gospel? Partnership through gospel unity. Moving on to point number two, what are the implications of knowing the true gospel? Point number two, preservation through gospel unity from verses 11 through 16. Look with me to those verses. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We see that between verse 10 and verse 11 some time has passed since Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. And Peter, or Cephas, same name used interchangeably, visits Antioch, where Paul was. And we read of a situation where Peter clearly acts sinfully as a hypocrite. Now, in the ancient world, what a hypocrite meant was that a person was an actor, someone who would put on a mask and play a part or act in a performance. Hence, the word connotes the concealing of one's true character, thoughts, or feelings under a guise, implying something quite different. So when you act hypocritically, you mask your true convictions and play a part that's not really yours. In the instance of Peter, even though he was a believer, his hypocrisy was that he was playing the part of a non-believer. That's why Paul says in verse 11, Peter stood condemned. Peter was guilty. Peter was in sin. This is what Peter was doing by his actions. He had affirmed Paul's gospel to the Gentiles previously. He himself had received a glorious vision from the Lord in Acts 11 that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, that there is no food that is clean or unclean by Jesus' revealed revelation. Since then, Peter had no issues with eating with the Gentiles, which was considered by the Jews as unclean. But we are told, when the Judaizers came from James or the church in Jerusalem, Peter acted hypocritically. And what's sad is as a leader of the church as an apostle, Peter's hypocrisy led others to act in such a way along with him. That's verse 13. This was no small matter in the eyes of Paul. And we are told very clearly why Paul was in grievous sin. The cause for Peter's hypocrisy was fear, fearing the circumcision party at the end of verse 12. In other words, Peter was aiming to please man, and as Paul had said in Galatians 1.10, Those who seek to please man cannot be servants of God. Hence, Peter rightly stood condemned. Wow, these verses teach us so many important lessons regarding how we need to guard the gospel, doesn't it? How we need to preserve the purity of the gospel. And listen, sometimes we need to protect it from entrusted men. Isn't it so shocking, or maybe not so shocking given such days? Even the apostle Peter had to be confronted for his hypocrisy, for his fear of man, for his grave sin, for leading fellow Christians in it. How does this challenge every single one of us that none of us are exempt from error, that no one, even the most influential, godly, wise Christian man or woman is ever exempt from rebuke and correction? Notice how Paul says he opposed Peter to his face publicly. This is not Paul being rude. This is not Paul being insensitive. Such public sin simply requires public confrontation. Here Paul recalls for us an example of even an apostle of Christ being under church discipline, a brother in serious, verifiable sin brought before the church. Brothers and sisters, here's precedence that should any pastor or church leader ever stray from the true gospel, ever veers toward a false gospel, they ought to be publicly, deliberately confronted. This is the reason why as a pastor of this church, I have said a multiple times, should any pastor or leader ever fall to such heresy, it is your job as members of this church to call us out, and fire us if we continue in such public sin. Can you imagine how awkward and uncomfortable that must have been for Paul to call out a fellow apostle to repentance? Brothers and sisters, I am almost positive Paul did not do so out of hate or harshness or because Paul had such a confrontational personality or even a moment of rage. Paul did so out of his love for a fellow brother in Christ a partner in the gospel. That's why these verses first establish that Peter and Paul were united in the gospel at one point. It is Paul who would later write, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teachings, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions." and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Brothers and sisters, do you have the courage to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching? Do you have the humility to receive such reproof, rebuke, and exhortation, knowing that even the best of us are susceptible to error and sin? Do you seek godly counsel? Or do you dismiss it when you hear something you don't want to hear? Or perhaps you think you don't need counsel or rebuke? You continue to keep the path of resistance and just see where your heart will end up. See if anyone will continue to offer loving correction to you when you become as one who is always resistant to wise biblical counsel. You will stand condemned. Now, it's most probable that Peter humbly took Peter's correction and repented. That's why Peter would go on in writing in 1 Peter 2:21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And Peter himself would follow in Christ's steps, even to be martyred, as history tells us, upside down on the cross as he dared not even to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, Christ Jesus. In order to guard what is most precious to us, namely the Gospel, we must preserve the purity of the Gospel. We must lovingly confront and rebuke and reprove and teach with patience. As Martin Luther again says, a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin, He is someone to whom, because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin. Which leads us to our final point, which I will just touch on and continue next time because these verses are so beautiful and rich, I cannot simply gloss over them. In order to guard the gospel, what is the final implication of the true gospel? Final point, perseverance through gospel clarity from verses 17-21. through I hope you're catching the main point of Galatians as Paul helps us to drill it in in our hearts and our minds. There is one gospel and there is no other. As Martin Luther again says, we can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith, and Jesus Christ, and that is that. Brothers and sisters, do you have such resolve as Luther, as Paul? Paul? Galatians is known as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, and rightly so, to compromise the gospel, to undermine the gospel, to be unclear on the gospel, is to lose the gospel entirely. As Tim Keller says, we never graduate from the gospel. As Christians, the gospel is not merely the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Zs. It is for us power and life and perseverance beginning to end hence necessitating clarity and fidelity to it for our perseverance. And that's what Paul does for us in verses 15 through 21. For the sake of time, I'm going to just read verses 15 and 16 because it summarizes so concisely and clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ and the heart of the core doctrine of our faith, justification by faith alone. Again, for the sake of time, I will simply read it, share the gospel from it, and we'll return to exposit it in the following weeks whenever I preach next. Verses 15 and 16 says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. Although we ourselves are not Jews by birth, almost all of us, I assume, but are Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in His sinless life, in His substitute death on the cross, in His bodily resurrection from death, in order to be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Guests and visitors, if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus, who offers you this invitation to receive the free gift of salvation by grace, I urge you today, to repent of your sins this moment believe that Jesus died and rose again for you and to trust in him with your whole life today and forevermore no amount of good deeds or self righteousness or self merit will save you or satisfy you or secure you only savior Christ Jesus who made an end of your sin who calls you today to trust in him if you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus Please talk to me or any of the other elders at the close of service at the back doors. We'd be happy to talk to you more about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we guard the possession that is most valuable to us? What are the implications of knowing the true gospel? One, partner through gospel unity by reminding each other of it and working together for the advancement of it. Preserve through gospel purity by reproving, rebuking, exhorting one another through discipling and accountability and humble receptance of it. And persevere through gospel clarity by continuing to remind yourself of it and one another of it. Share it to those who do not know it. Love it. Be amazed by it. Grow in it. Proclaim it. Live and die for it. Amen? Let's pray.